Welcome, everybody, to episode 29 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here again this week with my longtime colleague, Bill Rojo. Bill, say hi. Hello, everyone. This week, we're very happy to have a guest uh, to share uh, with you, somebody we've been wanting to have on the podcast since we started doing this earlier this year, actually, and that is Edmund Fitton Brown. He is the coordinator of the United Nations Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team concerning the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated individuals, groups, undertakings, and entities. Boy, that's a long, long title there. Uh, Edmund uh, previously served as Her Majesty's Ambassador to the Republic of Yemen from February 2015 until February 2017. That's a very interesting period to be an ambassador to Yemen. We're going to talk about that. And he joined the British Foreign uh, and Commonwealth Office in 1984 with his postings including in Dubai, Riyadh, Cairo, Kuwait, Rome, and Helsinki. That's quite an impressive uh, tenure you have, sir. And Ambassador, welcome to the show. We're very honored to have you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So let's jump right into it. We're going to jump right into the Q&A here with you. Um, the reason we have you on the show, of course, because Bill and I, as counterterrorism nerds, we're always following the work that you and your team, the excellent work that you and your team put out. You put out these regular reports on, as, as your title implies, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and you, you're always dealing with issues that we've been obsessed with for many years, and so this was, a, this was a great pleasure for us to have you on the show to talk about that, to talk about those reports. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about your professional background, because I find this fascinating. So I don't know if you have anything you'd like to, to share with the audience about your time as, as a, uh, an ambassador for the UK in Yemen. Um, in particular, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, it's a very interesting time to be the ambassador to Yemen. Of course, that was at the peak of the, the US-led high-value targeting campaign in which some very key AQAP individuals, that's Al-Qaeda and Arabian Peninsula leaders, were taken out. And I just was wondering if you had anything to share with the audience about your time in the uh, foreign service for the UK. Sure, yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks very much, Tom and Bill. Um, it's great. As I said, it's great to be here. Um, I, th I think probably the main thing to say is you've, you've already given me a good introduction there. Um, I guess what people will take away from that, quite rightly, is that I was mainly specialized in the Middle East during my time uh, working, uh, working for the UK Foreign Service. Um, and uh, I, I speak Arabic. Uh, I, was, I was trained in Arabic by them and, uh, and, and then had a sort of a succession of postings that, uh, that, that in many ways sort of you know, led on quite, quite logically one from the other. Uh, I became something of a specialist in counterterrorism, something of a specialist in cross-cutting regional security issues, and then all of that, in many ways, came together in the uh, in the Yemen posting that you referred to. Um, now, I should say, uh, as a disclaimer on this, uh, I'm always embarrassed to say this. I was ambassador to Yemen, but I wasn't ambassador in Yemen. Mm -hmm. um, very, very frustrating. Uh, unfortunately, because of the progress of the civil war there. Uh, because of the fact that uh, it was uh, increasingly difficult for uh, embassies to do their job in Sana'a uh, at the beginning of 2015, um, we evacuated on the same day that the US evacuated. And that was a matter of days before I took over, which was very frustrating. So my first task was to identify where I was going to uh, reopen my mission. Uh, and uh, we identified uh, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, um, just as the US did. Um, and uh, so I did, in fact, I did my, my posting primarily uh, in Jeddah. Um, I was only able to visit uh, Yemen once, and that was not Sana'a. It was, I mean, I've been to, of course, I've been to Sana'a on a number of occasions before, but as ambassador, I was only able to go to Aden. Uh, and that was when President Hadi was there, shortly before he was bombed out of there. 
um, and forced to leave the country temporarily. Um, and um, uh, I, present, I presented my credentials there uh, in Aden. Um, and uh, as I say, the rest of the time I was uh, operating mainly out of Jeddah, uh, but also uh, traveling a great deal, uh, very much involved in all of the rounds of peace talks that took place in that period. And there was one particularly uh, prolonged and, and initially very promising round of peace talks in Kuwait in 2016, which was a real highlight of my time, um, but, uh, but which ultimately, even though I think we came very, very close to an agreement, unfortunately, it didn't stick. Um, so very interesting times. Uh, it required a lot of flexibility. Um, as you say, there was a, a lot of counterterrorism uh, going on at the same time. Um, and that was something that, you know, I'd been particularly concerned with in the period before I was ambassador. Uh, when I was ambassador, I was more in the, uh, you know, more consumed with the peace talks. But of course, you know, one of the reasons that Yemen has been significant to the international community has been because of that uh, problem of ungoverned space, the problem of uh, extremists uh, having the freedom to operate there. Uh, and as you say, there were some important developments at that time, uh, broadly US-led, but with significant involvement of US allies um, and, uh, and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, uh, going through another of those sort of iterations of not really quite working out what their, what their purpose is. You know, are they there primarily to pose an international threat? Are they there primarily to try to uh, control territory in Yemen? Um, this is something they've never, it seems to me, quite resolved themselves. And it's got, they've gone through various iterations um, and they've lost a lot of people in the process. Uh, and I think the one perhaps where I'll close on this question is just by saying that my take on AQAP as it is now um, is that it appears to be significantly weakened uh, from the force that uh, certainly in the, uh, you know, in the sort of uh, period leading up to my uh, posting, uh, you know, it was regarded as one of the most threatening Al-Qaeda franchises. It still poses a threat, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely weakened and diminished. Edmund, uh, this is Bill. I have a, and again, thank you for joining us. It's, it really is a pleasure and an honor to have you with us. I have a really quick follow-up question. Um, I do recall in 2016, there was a lot of hope that there could be, actually be a settlement to that conflict. Are you, you at liberty to, to say why that all fell apart? Uh, I, yes, I mean, I can, I, can give you a, I can give you a broad uh, sense of that. Um, I mean, I, I think there was quite a lot of will to a solution at that time. Uh, you know, you can tell with um, discussions whether they're gaining traction or not. Uh, there were some earlier rounds in uh, in Switzerland uh, where they didn't gain traction, where you sensed that it was just something to get the uh, the parties to the dispute in the same room. Uh, and therefore, you know, you, you took these very, very small achievements as progress, but you could tell that you were nowhere close to... Uh, people making real compromises on difficult issues. The only time during my time as ambassador when we saw people making real compromise on difficult issues was in the run-up to the Kuwait talks. And at the very beginning of the Kuwait talks, there was a momentum going into the Kuwait talks that made me believe at that time that we stood a real chance of coming out with an agreement. And I think the reason that they failed was it was a... It was, it was a uh, I think mainly a loss of political will, a loss of this. One of the most difficult things here is whether uh, negotiators always have carry the full authority 
of the uh, of the um, disputing parties, uh, and certainly there was a severe disconnect between the uh, the the the, the uh, initial um, signs of flexibility from the Houthi side uh, with the uh, with the the way that eventually uh, they were uh, restrained in their willingness to compromise. Well, unfortunately, it didn't work out. And so now we still have this multi-sided conflict in Yemen. We've been tracking AQAP for years as well. We agree that they've definitely suffered a series of setbacks in Yemen. Um, you know, their, their political objectives of building a state there, I think, are are sort of are long, long established, but they're obviously not close to that right now. They've had to melt away a couple of times. Part of the trick, and we're going to get into this as we go on a little bit, is you know part of our our hesitancy in sort of writing any one of these groups off. Well, of course, you have the attack in Pensacola last year, which showed a little bit of a, a capability the AQAP still has for external operations, which is troubling. Um, and then also there's the, the aspect of the insurgency operations that there's, there's these groups tend to have a deep bench, as Bill likes to say, because you know, they operate as insurgents. And so you don't really ever know what their full capacity is. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit because we got some questions we're going to talk about what has that applies to ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all these uh, affiliated groups. But let's go from there from your time then as the ambassador to when did you join the UN monitoring team as a coordinator? Uh, almost exactly four months after I finished as ambassador to Yemen. So uh, both of those events happened in 2017. Now, how many um, analysts or researchers or others do you have working uh, with you there as part of the monitoring team? Just to give our audience a little bit of an idea of how you guys go about your business. Absolutely, yeah. It's important to understand the mission. And, and you know, uh, the UN uh, operates um, in a very a way that can sometimes be quite, quite complicated for, for people who don't study it closely. Um, it's important to say that we're a subordinate uh, to the Security Council, we were established by Security Council resolutions. Um, we usually refer to ourselves as the 1267 and 1988 team, and that is because the 1267 uh, resolution uh, was the original one which imposed sanctions on, um, on uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And the 1988 resolution uh, was the one which, uh, which separated out a separate committee uh, for the uh, sanctioning the Taliban. And that was obviously specifically at the time in 2011, uh, what they had in mind was that, you know, a peace process in Afghanistan uh, was ultimately going to be uh, the only way to, uh, to, to reach a, a satisfactory outcome in that country. Uh, and therefore it was important to uh, look at the Taliban in a slightly different light. Uh, uh, whereas, you know, Al Qaeda obviously, uh, and subsequently ISIL, uh, are regarded as uh, as uh, irre irreconcilable terrorist groups. Um, so uh, that's the way we that's the way we're set up, and our remit then is renewed by successive uh, UN Security Council resolutions, um, including one that uh, increased our number. Uh, you asked about the number. We are ten. Uh, we're called experts. We're like the panels of experts that the UN uh, has, uh, and 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 essentially. Uh, um, takes on uh, independent experts who will uh, look at these issues, bringing pre-existing expertise to the issues and also bringing independence to the, uh, to the issues so that it's not something that uh, is subject to a, a UN sort of chain of command uh, in terms of uh, what we can and can't say. Uh, and that has obvious, obvious value when it comes to uh, commenting on some of these sensitive issues. Um, so there are 10 of us. Uh, we're all from different uh, 
um, member states of the United Nations, but we cover a number of bases. Uh, we cover a number of, uh, of the uh, sort of constituencies of the United Nations member states, uh, Africa, Asia, Europe, uh, etc. Um, and uh, we also uh, enjoy support from a team of UN staff uh, who are, uh, as it were, uh, lent to us um, and work with us uh, very closely. So that effectively we are one team, but it's a team composed of two different types of beast, uh, experts or consultants on the one hand, uh, in, in which number I count myself, uh, and UN staff on the other. Um, and uh, in that respect, I guess the, the support we get from the UN probably effectively doubles our strength. And now, what kind of input does your team have in terms of which individuals and groups are sanctioned by the UN? Do you guys sort of have a say in, in how that goes about, or are you just monitoring sort of compliance with sanctions and sort of what's going on with this, the sanctioned entities? Yeah, I mean, so, th so there's a very important distinction to be, to be made between our two main tasks. One of them is the support of the sanctions regimes, and the other is the threat assessment. And in that respect, we, we, we approach them slightly differently. So we're very much responsible for the threat assessment. What we write in our reports twice a year, uh, what we uh, offer to the Secretary General for his reports on ISIL, uh, what we write in our annual report on the Taliban and threats to peace and security in Afghanistan uh, is very much our responsibility as independent experts. Um, and, uh, you know, we, so, so we, we call it as we see it. Um, and ultimately, you know, take responsibility for those judgments that we make. Um, the, the situation with the support for the sanctions committees is different. There, I would characterize our role as a technical support function. We are not responsible for the sanctioning of groups or for proposing listing or delisting of individuals or entities uh, on the 1267 or 1988 sanctions lists. In that respect, we're different from other panels of experts uh, who may propose uh, sanctions designations um, and who also have an investigative mandate, mandate which enables them to do so. So they will actually go out and look for information and then recommend that certain individuals who may be spoilers to a peace process or something of that sort should be sanctioned. In our case, we provide technical advice to member states and it's the member states who propose that somebody should be sanctioned or indeed removed from the list. Yeah, so that gets to the next question we had for you. This has got to be a tricky uh, area for you guys to operate in. Is how, you know, how do you interact with the member states? How do you solicit information from them? How do they get information to you? How do you sort of coordinate? I mean, obviously, member states have competing agendas or different priorities, and that's got to be quite the balancing act. I mean, it's sort of a – it seems to me like you could be walking on a balancing beam a lot of times in your analysis and trying to, to sort of thread the needle on this, not to mix my metaphors. But how do you, how do you uh, go about doing that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, and actually, it, it also uh, prompts me to say an important part of our tasking is that because of what we're dealing with, because of which parts of member states it is who actually are the custodians of the information, both about the individuals and entities who are under sanctions, but also those who are the custodians of the threat assessment in the member states, we are uniquely uh, mandated and specifically mandated by the Security Council to liaise with member states, intelligence services, special services, CT agencies. And that is a really important point because the UN doesn't 
have a huge amount of interaction with those parts of member states. And uh, it's one of the reasons that they hire uh, people for the monitoring team who tend to come from that kind of background. Uh, because again, there's an element of sort of generating the confidence that you can have the, con the conversation uh, at the confidential level uh, and not, uh, not have those uh, agencies clam up and be unwilling to share. Um, and, and that is, a, it's, it's, it's a, there's a science to this and how we manage that, how we reassure the member states, because there are two points here. You've made the political point, which I'll come to in a moment, but there is the operational security point as well. And now, mm -hmm. now we're not interested in operations. You know, that's not the UN's job. It's not the monitoring team's job. We don't go looking for, you know, who is chasing which high threat mm -hmm. individual. That's a separate issue. But the threat assessment side, the whole business of, what is the threat? What is the global threat to, uh, that ISIL and Al-Qaeda pose uh, to the international community, to member states? Um, there is a good deal of confidentiality in this. And so we have worked up a, a way of interacting with the member states. It's usually face-to-face. -face, and of course, that faces particular challenges at the moment because of the pandemic. Uh, but we manage it because there are ways of getting briefings, uh, privileged briefings forwarded to places where we can have those conversations. Um, and we have established the confidence of the member states that we know how to handle this information, that it won't become vulnerable either for technical reasons or because we're indiscreet, uh, and that we will only use uh, information in a way that is not harmful to the, uh, to the member state providing it. So that's one side of the question. But the main question you asked really was about the triangulation issue, the judgment issue. Uh, and that is a, that is a complex one. Uh, again, I think it's a matter of experience. It's why they hire experts. It's why they take on people who uh, have got a long track record in this in this area or in these disciplines. Uh, and so in my case, uh, you know, I, I am able to hear what a member state is telling me and develop a pretty good sense of, uh, of the underlying hard facts involved in this and what is analysis and what might be uh, influenced by political factors. Um, and sometimes this can be as straightforward as simply talking to people with different perspectives on the same issue and triangulating those perspectives. It can be as simple as that. But also we have noticed that, of course, the more that we talk to people who are really into the weeds of these issues, the, the people who are in the agencies particularly, you know, it doesn't have to be. We, we get some great briefings from ministries of foreign affairs. We get some great briefings from national security secretariats. But still, the deeper we go, the more we find that, in fact, we'll be given information uh, which does check out. It, it has the, it ha, it, it, it's convincing information because it's coming from experts who themselves can only do their job if they're tr if they're actually trading in accurate information. And so, you know, one one good example of that is um, is you know how uh, we've we've often uh, found that in our interactions with uh, the Afghan authorities when they've given us information about groups operating in Afghanistan. Uh, numbers, uh, which I think we may come to later as one of the controversial <laughs> issues. Um, it's been interesting to me how, how rarely they've sought to spin or exaggerate. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that, I think that essentially reflects the sort of the recognition of the importance of an accurate understanding of the picture. It's not to say that it doesn't happen, but of course, it's that depth of exposure to the facts that then enables us to uh, pick the wheat from the chaff and ultimately to come up with uh, uh, judgments which we as a team collectively can all sign up to. 
I don't know, Bill, do you have anything more here on uh, sort of how the UN monitoring team works before we move on to the substance? We're, we're always itching to get into the nerdy details. Uh, yeah. So that's sort of uh, that's sort of our game. Do you have anything else, Bill, before we move on? No, that's. I think that that uh, handles that perfectly. Um, that's yeah, a great overview, yeah. It Thank really is. It, 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 yeah. It's very important for us to understand how you do your business in order for us to understand what the information that you're putting, uh, putting out to us. And I really appreciate you taking the time. To, to, to detail that to not just to Tom and I, but to all of our listeners. Um, so we're going to get it. Let's get into it. Uh, let's let's talk about the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, their ISIS. Um, you know, it's clear that it, that ISIS lost the ter- of its uh, territorial caliphate was a, was a big blow for the group. Um, but what is a, what is your monitoring monitoring team's assessment of ISIS's strength inside Iraq and Syria today? Yeah, I mean, uh, so we get to the numbers point. Um, uh, in our most recent report, we said that the um, the combined number of ISIL fighters in Iraq and the Syria and Syria was estimated at more than ten thousand. With regular movement between the two, uh, you know, there's still still a problem of porous borders. Um, I, I want to stress, you know, we do deal in numbers, and I think it's important to deal in numbers, but it's also important, and this is one of the disciplines that we try to pose on ourselves, uh, that we compare like with like effectively. And so uh, at least people who are reading the reports can look at trends in what we're saying and saying, okay, it looks as if that group is getting stronger or that group is getting weaker. Um, you know, but whether you were actually talking about, you know, so what is a fighter? Is a fighter somebody who's actually standing up above ground pointing a gun, you know, or if somebody has hidden their gun and is currently involved in some kind of important uh, facilitation exercise for ISIL, are they any less of a threat? Well, no, they're not. Um, if somebody is a highly effective female organizer or planner, are they any less of a threat? No, they're not. Um, but if somebody is simply a dependent of the group, uh, are they less of a threat? Yes, they are less of a threat. And, and so so we have to try and be as clear as we can about what we're talking about, whether we're talking about fighters, whether we're talking about uh, active members, whether we're talking about communities. Um, the community's point comes in as well as an issue because, you know, the United, the United Nations is leading uh, uh, an international effort to try to address the problem of people left behind in, uh, in areas that were previously under the control of ISIL. Uh, in, 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 uh, particularly in, uh, in Syria. Um, and, um, of course, what you have to recognize when you look at a problem like the camp in El Hol is that you have a huge number of people there who are not actually guilty of anything, uh, particularly the minors. You know, there are a lot of children there. Um, and so uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a point there about the humanitarian issue and the critical importance of dealing with this correctly, humanely, legally. Um, but there is a security dimension as well, because if you get it sufficiently wrong, then people who needn't have become a threat may become a threat. So that's, a, that's, that's perhaps a point to make again on this broad point about numbers. Um, in terms of the strength, so I've, I gave that number. Um, let me quickly mention uh, ISIL-K, uh, Khorasan in Afghanistan. Again, I think what we've done usefully on that is that we've managed to identify a downward trend in the number of, uh, let's say, um, active service uh, members of ISIL Khorasan uh, over the period that I've been doing this job since 2017. We used to get widely ranging member state estimates of how strong uh, ISIL-K was. 
and we still do to some degree. And we did that triangulation process that I described earlier to come up with our own estimate, which a couple of years ago was between about 3,500 and 4,000. Our current estimate is between 2,000 and 2,200. And that reflects some of the blows which ISIL-K has endured in Afghanistan over the last couple of years, starting with uh, setbacks in Jiaozhan province and then continuing through last winter. Um, and so I think, again, I wouldn't want to die in the ditch on those numbers. I wouldn't want to say <laughs> we know that there are exactly 2,000 to 2,200. But I think the trend is revealing. Yeah, I'm going to follow the numbers important. You know, look, Tom and I, we do not pretend to know the numbers in any of these theaters. One of the things we try to do is just use some reason. And I remember with early on in the with the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, when it took an area about the size of Britain, right? I think that's the estimate that we often hear. You had the U.S. government initially coming out and saying they have about 10,000 fighters under its command. And Tom and I are looking at this and saying, they're holding major cities. They're fighting on multiple fronts. They're beating back the Iraqi army and the Syrian military and the Kurds. And, the, you know, and you start looking and you just say, look, I don't know what that number is, but I know that 10,000 doesn't sound right. And then quickly, what that number went up to like, I think it went to like 21,500 to 31,500 or something to that effect. Like the number quickly went up. And now you're giving us an, an estimate, which, by the way, which I think is a fair estimate looking at the security situation today, that makes far more sense if they're an underground organization. But we're actually back to that number when, you know, which was the initial estimate. So this is where, you know, again, we don't we don't pretend to know the answers here, but we just find that, you know, reasonable estimates make sense. Unreasonable estimates, they stick out to us like a sore thumb, like 50 to 100 in Afghanistan or 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 10,000 Islamic State fighters in Iraq and Syria when they control vast, vast amounts of territories, major cities and able to impose its will. So, yeah, we, we, we agree with your, your methodology on the assessment. And and I think something that really you hit on a point here. What about the, you know, for every fighter that's in the field, how many are, of them are providing logistical financial support, all of the support that happens in the background? And those are the numbers, I think, that we really do not understand. So, totally with you on that, Bill. I mean, I think, I think you've described that uh, extremely well. Um, when when uh, ISIL controlled all of that territory, they were running a pseudo state. If you're yes. running a pseudo state, you've got police, you've got bureaucrats. Um, and so, you know, you're talking about a very, very large body of people who are, you know, activists and, and also, you know, because, because of the nature of that particular uh, conflict, that particular cause, uh, these are militant people, you know, so, so, so yes, I couldn't agree more with you that the, the numbers uh, at that time would have been vastly higher. Uh, and also, um, let's not forget that, you know, there's a fairly common uh, internationally accepted estimate of 40,000 foreign terrorist fighters alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, we, we were our critique of the estimates came when uh, Bill and I were laughing because basically a year after the American campaign, the American assessments were going up in terms of the number of fighters that ISIS had. And we're looking at this thinking, boy, this is not a very effective campaign if, the, if they're actually increasing their ranks while you're while you're bombing them across uh, two countries. So, you know, this was one of the many things we're going to talk a little bit, too, about Afghanistan and why our longstanding skepticism there of any sort of estimates there and how you guys go about doing that. But an important thing that's before we move on, another important point that stood out to me was, 
you guys have a consistent baseline methodology so you can compare your numbers within yeah. your sort of analytic framework, which I think is very important because you can get numbers from different sources and they may be thinking about things differently and doing things differently. And it's sort of, you're really trying to compare apples to apples as opposed to apples to oranges, which is a good way of, of looking at your reporting, I think, um, for people that are following reports as we do. And I guess, you know, another area here too, so we talked about how murky this sort of idea of the the numbers is, the, the assessments. You know, there's another area here that's it's something Bill and I follow, but we, you know, always are only privy to little snippets of information, which is sort of the relationship between, you know, the group's senior leadership in ISIS and the so-called provinces or affiliates elsewhere. And I know this is something your reporting has touched on. I think every many of your reports have some details on it that stick out to us that are important. But I was wondering if you got you could tell us or share with us sort of, you know, what your current assessment is or what the monitoring team's current assessment is of ISIS now that they've suffered these setbacks. What's the, the current status, you think, of its ties between the leadership cadre and the so-called provinces, let's say, in Afghanistan, what they call the Khorasan, includes, you know, at times, Pakistan, surrounding countries, uh, West Africa, Somalia, Yemen, you know, the Philippines. I know it's probably a different story in each case, maybe, or maybe it isn't. But, you know, maybe if you could share something in general about how your team goes about trying to assess that thorny issue. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, obviously, we're so as I said, we're, we're consulting with member states, uh, intelligence services, and counterterrorism agencies. Uh, we're consulting both in, if you like, in the regions. Um, so we travel very widely. Uh, we'll be talking to people, uh, you know, as you just said in the Philippines. Um, uh, the same would be true uh, of, of any of the uh, any of the uh, regions that you just mentioned, uh, or locations that you just mentioned. We're also talking to uh, people with a global perspective, uh, to the United States, to the United Kingdom, to France, to Russia, to, you know, like, you name it. You know, there's a, there are so many significant countries that have insights outside their own immediate sphere. You could say the same of Turkey or say the same of, of Egypt, uh, you know, and I, and I won't name everybody, but, but, you, but you get the picture. Uh, we, these are, these are cross-cutting pieces of analysis that we're getting that are enabling us to look at the group strategically and globally, but also uh, in a detailed way, regionally and locally. Um, and this point that you make about um, what is the nature of the relationship between the core and the affiliates, I mean, that I think has been significantly determined by the uh, the counter-terrorist campaign, and of course, you know, above all, in fact, the uh, the interlocking military campaigns, uh, which have been uh, in play uh, over the recent years, and particularly, uh, particularly uh, leading up to 2019. Um, so, ISIL is, um, by its inclination, is uh, very centralised. It's a it's an organisation which is uh, is very disciplined. It has somebody it identifies as its so-called uh, caliph or leader, um, and um, you know they 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 expect uh, they expect people to to pledge allegiance and to do what they're told. Um, and so, of course, at the time when ISIL was controlling territory, that was a relatively straightforward concept. I mean, you you have somebody who is effectively the dictator of a of a pseudo state, as I said. Um, and uh, interestingly, of course, Al Qaeda, which has been very much of a different mind from ISIL. Um, ever since the rise of ISIL and uh, and, and and remains so, uh, has a very different approach. Al Qaeda, as 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 you, as you guys know, um, has uh, has had a much looser structure for a much longer time. Uh, it's been very striking how uh, how much delegated authority there is uh, around the Al Qaeda network. Uh, very striking how uh, how much the uh, uh, affiliates of Al Qaeda get embedded in local. 
um, issues and take on the characteristics of the regions uh, where they're operating. Um, ISIL wasn't like that, but it's becoming like that. But ISIL, I think, is becoming like that of necessity. So as ISIL was under this intense military pressure, and you know, let's not forget that that campaign uh, was highly effective. I mean, you know, and I think people sometimes forget this. I mean, uh, we must, I think, as counterterrorism professionals, we must be willing to acknowledge good news when there's good news. You know, we all know that there's a terrorist threat. We all know that there will always be a terrorist threat. But you can say the same for crime. You know, the, the idea that, there, that we would ever live in a world with no terrorism is not realistic. So the question is, is the terrorist threat at a level that uh, is uh, a reasonable achievement from the point of view of the uh, global uh, commitment to international security? Um, you know, we're not there. We'll never quite be there because it's one of those tasks that is, that is ultimately never complete. But the current ambient threat level that exists outside conflict zones, that exists, uh, you know, on the streets of uh, major cities uh, that are not actually in uh, areas of civil war or areas of other conflict, um, is actually very low at the moment. It's much, much lower than it was back in 2015, 2016. So let's acknowledge that there was, a, there was a great success against ISIL and it took huge attrition. Large numbers of people, many, many of its leaders, many of its fighters, many of its operatives were killed. Um, what happened then, of course, was that ISIL had to change gear and there was a sort of a period of gear change between 2017 and 2019, which was the dying days of the geographical so-called caliphate. And then effectively, they were trying to manage two things at the same time. On the one hand, they were trying to defend what territory they still had, but they'd already lost it, or they lost in Iraq in 2017, and then they finally lost in Syria in 2019 in March. Um, and, but that, you know, of course, that was iconically important to them. They didn't want to lose the last territory in Syria. So they had to fight it. But at the same time, they were changing gear and they were pursuing the parallel track of delegating authority and preparing for a new phase, the so-called virtual caliphate. The caliphate as an idea, the caliphate as something that would be pursued by people uh, inspired around the world, uh, even though there was no longer a uh, geographical entity that corresponded to that. So they went into a process, a managed process of delegation. And then that managed process of delegation was also accelerated by various things, including, of course, security considerations. If you look, for example, at the death of Baghdadi, it's very hard to escape the conclusion that Baghdadi's demise was partly linked to the fact that he felt the need to communicate. And you can understand why he felt the need to communicate, because without his communication, then you know, there's a danger that the dream, as it were, dies. And so he took that risk, and probably that was connected causally to the fact that he was then killed. Now, it's interesting that the, still the most watched ISIL products in their propaganda are his last two communications, the video and the audio. And of course, nobody has anything to look at when it comes to the successor, because the successor you're getting ahead of us here. You got my my next question <laughs> exactly right. You know, it's exactly no, it's right. That's no, right. Yeah, no, I, no, that's perfect. That's a perfect segue. Yeah, no, it's great. Well, well, why don't why don't I why don't I stop that 
No, no, no. We we'll keep going. We'll keep rolling with it. I'm just teasing. We, we have a, we have a jo- we have a jocular way of doing this, so it's good. You're good. You're you're, you're fine. You know, that's just me. That's just me being a wise ass. So that's just the but, way we do it. So, but what I'll do is I'll come back to your original sense of your question and just sure. say that, that all of this then has led up to a progressive, uh, progressive uh, delegation of authority uh, to the uh, remote provinces, as I will call them, um, yeah. and they have they they appear to be looking at a sort of a hub and spoke model where there there are certain established provinces which seem to take on responsibilities in relation to less established ones in the same region. So, for example, the so-called West Africa province operating in Lake in the Lake Chad Basin clearly has certain responsibilities on behalf of the so-called Greater Sahara province, which is operating uh, further further west in the Sahel. Uh, The presence in Somalia uh, also appears to have a sort of a hub relationship with these nascent presences that we've uh, detected uh, in uh, in Mozambique and in the the, uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, Isil Khorasan clearly is the hub for South Asia. Uh, And so, there's a, there's a delegation of authority partially to these hubs and then also partially even beyond the hubs to the point where ISIL is willing to welcome activity where the senior leadership had no knowledge of it in advance. And the, the, the best example of that perhaps were the Easter Sunday attacks in Sri Lanka in 2019, where, uh, you know, a, 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 an ISIL-inspired presence had uh, grown up and acquired a significant capability um, with only a minimal interaction with uh, ISIL outside Sri Lanka, but essentially did its own thing and decided to go with those uh, huge, uh, ghastly attacks that, that, that happened uh, on Easter Sunday in 2019. And we know that the ISIL senior leadership knew nothing about this in advance. They didn't know that was going to happen. And when Baghdadi reacted to it, it was, a, it was an audio annex to a video message Sort of, oh, that's right, that's right. That yeah, was, it was an that add-on. Was good, I remember that. That was yeah. good what happened. Yeah. Um, and, and so this is interesting. I think what this indicates is that what we should expect to see happen is that ISIL will ISIL franchises will increasingly also start to take on local authority and local characteristics. So let's talk about Baghdadi's successor because um as you know, we haven't really heard anything from him. He's sort of this enigmatic figure uh, known as Abu Ibrahim al-Qureshi. Um, I prefer his other nom de guerre because the one I knew him about previously, uh, Haji Abdullah. Uh, but he's somebody, you know, basically when when ISIS introduced him as the successor to Baghdadi, very little was known about him publicly. There's been a lot of um, sort of trying to tease out his, his biography and figure out who he is and where he comes from. There was this idea that he wasn't even an Arab, uh, which gets into a complex lineage there and issue with the tribal relations and everything else in, in Iraq, which I'm not capable of teasing out at this moment. Uh, but there was also reporting that he was a temporary emir, just sort of a figurehead to put in place. Like that, that doesn't appear to be right, obviously. You know, I, I didn't I didn't think so at the time. I think he was I think they had a had a line of succession probably in place for Baghdadi. They knew Baghdadi was likely to die and they had somebody ready to take over for him. Um what, what can you tell us about his successor? I mean, how does the monitoring team go about looking into a guy like this? A guy who, you know, sometimes when ISIS itself, of course, is not being forthcoming with information about who he is, you have to go to, obviously, the, the member states uh, and the analysts and intelligence uh, authorities in those places to figure out, you know, what do we know about this guy? Maybe you could walk listeners through a little bit about how you go about piecing together the details on somebody like this who is that important to ISIS. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, and a really, again, a really important uh, question. Uh, so um, what the interesting point, and I think you make it very clearly, um, is that this guy is announced by Nom de Guerre rather than by Nom de Guerre and claimed honorifics, you know, claiming to be Al-Hashimi, Al-Qureshi and, and all of that. Um, this is all about lineage. It's about, uh, it's about claiming uh, credentials to be the so-called caliph. Um, now, the actual names mean nothing. And you're quite right, you know, there's the association with Haji Abdullah, but what does that mean? You know, how many right. Haji Abdullahs are there? Right. Um, and uh, so that means that when he was first named by ISIL, and let's remember that this is all we've got from them, from the horse's mouth up to now, is these, is these names. Um, we, we then say, well, okay, so who is this guy? And you look at people who are known to have been identified as Haji Abdullah. Um, you look at the claim, the honorifics, and you think, well, does that suggest that the guys, you know, really got that sort of um, background or is, or are they protesting too much? Are they trying to cover up for the fact that, you know, maybe he has a, a background that might cause consternation amongst some elements in ISIL as not being, you know, sufficiently, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, ISIL pure. Um, so uh, I, you, you look at these clues and of course, as you say, above all, we go to the member states. We go to the member states and say, what do you think? You know, what do you, what do you make of this? Uh, and we got, it, we got answers pretty quickly uh, and we were able to uh, state with a fairly high degree of confidence that he was Amr al-Mawla. Um, and we stated that in our 25th report in uh, December 2019. So, you know, actually within just a couple of months of the, uh, of the, of the, of the changeover. And Amala was a known ideologue for ISIS, a guy who was you know, issuing religious edicts or fatwas that justified various atrocities and everything else. So it's somebody, you, you were able to identify him as a known entity within ISIS, in other words. Absolutely. Uh, a man with, uh, a man with uh, very strong and, uh, and, and uh, thoroughly repellent uh, operational and ideological credentials uh, and organizational credentials as well. Um, and so very credible that it would have been him. You know, he was the guy who was appeared to be uh, operating as Baghdadi's de facto deputy. Uh, at that time when we were piecing this together, uh, I remember the uh, State Department website was very helpful because there was an enormous great reward on uh, on uh, on Al Mawla's head, uh, $5 million, I think, I think now doubled to 10 million, if I remember correctly. Um, but, you know, that's, it was nice at the time to be able to highlight that in the report and invite people to go and check it out on the State Department website, picture of the guy, lots of information about his background, including the fact that he was uh, captured by US forces at one point. Um, and, uh, and then in the following six months, uh, we got confirmation from a whole range of member states to the point where we were no longer in any doubt. Now, our confidence in this regard, with the corresponding confidence of member states, led to him being listed, designated on the 1267 sanctions list. You know, it, it's one thing that people don't easily understand is the fact that the 1267 sanctions list is not all that long. It's only a few hundred names. And sometimes people you would think must be listed aren't listed yeah. yet because no member state has brought them forward for listing. Mm -hmm. And as it happens, that was the case with Almola but it's no longer the case. He is now 
designated by the 1267 sanctions list. So the best source now on El Mola really is to go to the, to the 1267 sanctions list, which gives a very, very full uh, account of who he is, his aliases, his background, a narrative summary about, about, you know, about what he did before. Um, and so uh, that was what we did. Uh, the listing was was worthwhile, symbolically worthwhile. It's very important that the leader of ISIL is listed, of course. Um, and uh, the other thing about this, of course, that's interesting is to what extent this sort of confounds ISIL's intention to keep him shrouded in a sort of a cloak of mystery for now. You know, to what extent it undermines the claims of the Al, -Al Hashimi Al Qurashi. Uh, claims that they're making about him. And uh, interestingly, the guys at uh, West Point, CTC, uh, you will be very aware recently, uh, were able to use some declassified US material, uh, which, uh, which was revealing about some of the things that he said to his uh, interrogators whilst he was in uh, US custody. And that's really interesting stuff. Uh, and and, and as, as one of the contributors in that forum memorably said, it actually suggests that he was a rat and a snitch. Um, an elitist, somebody who would do absolutely anything uh, because he was so convinced that the survival of the supreme leadership, as it were, uh, was more important than the welfare of any other members of the group. Uh, I thought that was from a, if you like, from a counter propaganda narrative, that was pretty damning stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the rare instances where the U.S. actually tries to uh, use its holdings against these guys to expose what they did. I mean, it's it's an information operation by the U.S. to expose this about him, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. You know, I mean, this guy, you know, the U.S. has held a number of jihadis who were snitches, who were sort of rats on their colleagues throughout time. And just exposing that, you know, is is the type of thing I, I would argue the U.S. government should be doing, you know, to basically counter these guys and 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 sort of uh, knock the veneer off of their holier than thou veneer and their idea that they're sort of so sacrosanct that they would never betray their brethren or the cause. Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of data saying you did, you know, uh, and and that's the sort of thing I think that basically, you know, if, if you listen to Bill or, or myself through the years, we think more of that should have been done, not less, you know, to expose who these guys are. Um, and what they've done. Bill, you got some questions maybe a little bit on the sort of the ISIS and... Yes, and before I... In one, to add one more point to that, Tom, not only mention it, we should have video evidence of this. I mean, nothing would be more damning than these guys being on tape denouncing their brethren. I mean, it, we don't do that. We, for whatever reasons, I'm sure most of them are legalistic. Um, we just refuse to um, get our hands a little dirty and, and show these guys turning on each other. But... Um, to, that's a that's a topic for a whole nother show, I'm sure, as we often say around here. Um, you know, so Edmund, you you had um, noted that uh, the Islamic State's capacity for directing major international attacks it's it's, it's evolved over the past several years uh, since the loss of its physical caliphate. Um, but you know, Tom and I have, have argued for years that um, the external attacks or the international attacks are are merely just one facet to what um, these both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State are doing. They both maintain significant insurgencies. And, and we believe we view these insurgencies as the lifeblood um, to these organizations. It allows them to establish the training camps and whatnot. And given that these insurgencies are, are ongoing, would you agree or disagree that, that things can change very quickly, um, that the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda can very quickly turn on a dime and, and launch major, uh, 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 major international attacks when it so chooses or when it has the capacity. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, first of all, Bill, I mean, the sort of the injunction against complacency is very well made 
uh, we cannot be complacent in this. Um, you know, when I said we have to be realistic, when I said we have to acknowledge good news, I this is the, the flip side of that very same coin, is that periods where the threat is relatively low are by definition, they're going to, they're going to be transitory. Uh, you know, the, tr the threat will come and go. Uh, so there's no complacency there. I completely agree with you. Um, there are some important points, though, to be made on this, because, again, you know, it's important that we uh, it's important that we try as best we can to frame the threat uh, realistically. Um, there's there's a point just going back to the very last thing that you were saying about uh, about uh, um, Almola. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's not really for me to say how uh, those sort of um, counter propaganda sure. uh, operations should run. But the one thing I will say is that I think uh, I think Almola and ISIL have a problem because at the moment there's no good news for them. Everything has gone wrong. They've lost Iraq. They've lost Syria. They've lost Baghdadi. Uh, they've got a leader who can't even communicate directly. Uh, and about whom things have been said, which are pretty disobliging. Uh, and of course, uh, has also, you know, they've also been thoroughly slated by Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda um, uh, delighted in the defeat of ISIL. Um, so there is an interesting point here. Um, ISIL has been out of the news for a long time. It hasn't been able to do very much uh, in the way of high profile or high impact attacks for some time. And there is a relevance issue here. They need to be, uh, they need to be mindful, and I think they are mindful, uh, of the fact that people aren't seeing them at the moment, and particularly during the pandemic, uh, with the pandemic having sort of, you know, skewed the whole uh, perception of news, um, not very many people are talking about ISIL. Uh, and there is, so for them, the, the smell of defeat and the, the threat of irrelevance, uh, these are things that they will be worrying about. And, and, and that's not a reason for complacency. It's actually a reason to think that they will be redoubling efforts to try and demonstrate relevance. So, you know, I, I anticipate that there, there will be a certain amount of planning that will eventually come to fruition. And some of it may be planning that's been done during the period of the lockdown, during the period of the uh, travel restrictions uh, with the pandemic, uh, where it was possible to do a lot of propaganda, a lot of talking, uh, but, uh, but travel was difficult and various other uh, logistical aspects of mounting attacks was difficult. So that's, that, again, I completely take your point that we must not be, uh, we must not be complacent. One of the key things we must remember is that in the process of the military defeat, ISIL consciously folded its external operations capability because it, 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 it concluded that it was a luxury. It folded it back into its general security bureau. Now, that's not to say that the people with the experience and the people who compose that threat, you know, they're not all gone. Those people still exist. You know, those, you know, some have been killed, but uh, some have not, and some are still available. Nevertheless, the idea of ISIL being able to operate a highly capable bureaucracy with resources at its disposal uh, to pull levers internationally, at the moment, that is not borne out by the evidence. At the moment, ISIL is heavily reliant on inspired attacks. That's why the Sri Lanka attacks were such a shock and why they were so welcomed by the ISIL leadership, because they represented a very rare uh, set of attacks with strategic impact that were effectively inspired attacks rather than directed or facilitated by ISIL's core leadership. Now, what we know from, the member, from member states' sources um, is that ISIL 
intends to reconstitute its external operational capability. The evidence at the moment is that it probably has not yet successfully done so, but we can never relax on that point. It could happen anywhere. And this is where we come to the importance of the point you were making about insurgencies. One of the things insurgencies do is that they, they keep the dream alive, they keep soldiers active, they keep people uh, trained and effective and motivated, and they also represent ungoverned space and places where it's possible to extort money and to maintain resorts. And so ISIL affiliates have access to all of that. And there is still some support which is going out from ISIL core to the affiliates, some tribute being paid back from the affiliates to ISIL core. So it would be wrong to suggest that this organization has become dysfunctional. It hasn't become dysfunctional. It's just very, very heavily constrained by the forces that have been arraigned against it. And we must look at it in those terms. We must also be concerned about the possibility that one of these conflict arenas could turn into full-on ungoverned space, and you could end up with a situation of the kind that we're all too familiar with from Afghanistan years ago, um, where you end up then with a permissive space in which it's possible to relaunch, you know, a sort of a full-on organization with all the capabilities that ISIL used to enjoy. You know, if I just interject one one note here, you know, because what you're saying uh, makes a lot of sense to me in terms of evaluating these threats. You know, one of the things that Bill and I always struggle with is, is trying to explain to people how we view these threats to Americans or Europeans or others. And I mean, you know, it's one of those things like I tell friends and when I do this business, I, I don't tell any American to live in fear of a terrorist attack. Obviously, the probability you're going to die in a terrorist attack or be wounded in a terrorist attack inside the U.S. or in Europe is very low, obviously, you know, uh, the this is not something that, you know, especially now where you have an American society where we've got a lot of domestic turmoil, obviously, here. There's a lot of other things to worry about, obviously, other than the terrorist threat. And the same same is true in a lot of other countries. Um, but, you know, on, on the flip side, you know, when people point out the fact, well, there hasn't been another major sort of 9-11 style attack, which is true in the U.S., um, you know, there are many reasons for that. You know, it's not just a, there's not a monocausal explanation for why that's the case. But one of the reasons is that, you know, there's been counterterrorism pressure overseas that has suppressed various threats over time, whether it be from first Al Qaeda and then the Al Qaeda so-called affiliates or regional branches and then ISIS. And so it's sort of um, to me, it's a little it's a little off. Uh, the point is a little bit off to say, well, there's not been another big attack since 9-11. Therefore, there is no threat. You know, to me, if you you you, there certainly not all the threats that have been countered are you know as serious as the 9/11 threat, but some of them are. Some of them we can point to and say, look, you know, the guys that were taken out were very very accomplished operatives, or they had some very serious plans in mind. And it, it speaks to that whole sort of vigilance point that you've talked about here a couple of times going forward. And I think that 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 sort of just leads to another uh, question here for you in, in the monitoring team and how you're going to assess this going forward. It's very clear to us the U.S. has lost the will to to neutralize threats overseas or combat jihadists overseas. And you can see there's a big push to get out of Afghanistan now. Um, you know, there's you know a lot of uh, sentiment that even the small force in Syria and Iraq is not sustainable. There's a lot of push to get out of there. And I'm just curious, you know, how that's going to affect sort of um, the monitoring team's ability to analyze these threats and what's going forward if the U.S. and its allies pull back. Because it, to, to my mind, it must sort of compromise their intelligence capabilities a little bit and their ability to analyze situations perhaps a lot. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, let me start from the point you made earlier, which was the, you know, the one about uh, stopping the attacks by, you know, forward-based activity. 
One, it's one of the reasons that we've developed uh, in the monitoring team, we've started to use the terminology about conflict zones and non-conflict zones. Uh, and this is important because uh, it's not that conflict zones are any less important than non-conflict zones. They're both important, but they have different dynamics and they play into each other. And ultimately, whatever peace of mind you may have in a non-conflict zone can ultimately be compromised by a failure to address the conflict zones. So we're trying to make it clear. It's the complexity of that picture that we're trying uh, to convey. Um, every, every terrorist attack is a tragedy. There have been horrific terrorist attacks that have taken place over the last couple of years. I mean, if you think about some of the atrocities that have taken place in Afghanistan, Absolutely. some of the things that ISIL-K has done, and it's not just there, it's plenty of other places as well. And I, you know, I won't name them all, but, but the point is, that um, all of these are tragedies. And That's ultimately, right. the, the international community is not successful uh, from the point of view of international peace and security until it successfully addresses those conflict zones. So that is, you know, that, that would be real success. That would be, that would be the ultimate in success in suppressing not just terrorism, but the causes of terrorism as well. And, and, and we must never, ever lose sight of that. Um, but, uh, but, but, but at the same time, you know, it, it is necessary to explain to people, uh, you know, if they are uh, if they are going about their business uh, on the streets of, you know, let's say New York, which is where I happen to be, um, you know, that uh, to have a realistic appreciation of how how what the immediate terrorist threat is. Every government has a responsibility uh, to uh, to explain that to its people, to explain what what are the various uh, what are the various uh, risks and threats? Um, so that's that's why we go for this kind of terminology to explain the codependency between these issues, but also the fact that they can be on different tra trajectories and different timelines. Um, so that was my that was my first point. Second point: uh, I haven't yet seen any evidence of a reduced capability of our key member states in terms of their ability to understand these threats. You know, we still get really outstanding insights from all of our member state interlocutors. Um, if, you, if you're looking ahead to a time when there was a significant growth in, uh, let's say a significant shrinkage in multilateralism, a significant shrinkage in uh, commitment to uh, not just uh, kinetic counterterrorism, but also to development objectives and other objectives which uh, are tend to stabilize uh, and address the issues in conflict zones, then I agree with you. Then I think we are looking at a, we're storing up trouble for the future because what we can't do is say, that's over there, it's never gonna come over here. We, we, we know from history that that is not the case. So it's a question of how you strike a sweet spot with that. You know, it, 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 I, I fully understand why people are tired of military campaigns because sure. sometimes military campaigns uh, appear to be going nowhere, appear to be expensive, Maybe appear to be undertaken uh, uh, on 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 the on on a basis that is uh, that ultimately becomes problematic. Um, so it's not that it's not that there aren't real policy issues here. There are, but I, I'm sure that the countries that really care about counterterrorism and, and there are many who do, I think they will continue to nourish and invest in these capabilities. So I don't anticipate that that particular capability of the monitoring team is under threat anytime soon. 
Well, that's good news. Yeah, I, I basically my question was coming from the sort of the zero posture sort of talk that we see in the U.S., where basically there's a push to get to, to zero in a lot of these places. You know, there's there's talks about pulling back from everywhere, and and my only suspicion is that if the U.S. were to do that, if they were to get out of everywhere, basically, and you know, look, the the days of large scale counterinsurgency campaigns are over. We're not talking about major investing in major war efforts here going forward. I'm just talking about you know keeping a smaller footprint in different hot spots to keep tabs on things. I think that I think that you could see a situation in which you'd have problems keeping tabs on what's going on. I mean, Bill and I have been covering Afghanistan, for example, for many years now. Even with a large U.S. presence in Afghanistan, we'd argue the U.S. didn't have a very good understanding of al-Qaeda and affiliated groups in the country. So, uh, you know, it's, it only strikes us that going forward, it probably could get worse, you know, uh, especially if uh, the Taliban makes further gains and, and the U.S. is completely out of the country. But let's move on to now a little bit to al-Qaeda uh, before we let you go here. Um, this is a fascinating conversation. And thank you again for joining us and doing this. This is, I'm sure this is great for our listeners. Listeners. Let's talk a little bit about Al Qaeda and some of the stuff that's in the, the UN's reporting because we always uh, scoop this stuff up and we, we, we're very fascinated to see what you guys have to say about both ISIS and Al Qaeda and, of course, Al Qaeda and the Taliban. And one of the things that I know I think you guys reported recently or in one of the reports was that there are rumors of Ayman al Zawahiri sort of having poor health, having heart problems. Uh, that wouldn't be surprising to us, of course. You know, he's getting up there. He's been in the game for a long time. He's been hunted. I was wondering if you had any further insights at all on Zawahiri and his status. You know, the the commander, General McKenzie of CENTCOM, says he's in eastern Afghanistan. There's reporting in your reports that says he's in long, somewhere along the AFPAC border region, somewhere in there, which is where we'd all suspect he would be. I'm um, curious if you had any updates on 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 the old Sheikh here and where he, or I'm sorry, the old doctor and where he's going from here. Sure. Uh, yeah, and a really important question, and of course, you know, also relevant to the fact that uh, you know the the news of Hamza bin Laden's uh, death that uh, that was uh, confirmed last year. Um, that question of where Al Qaeda is going, and uh, you know, what does what does Zawahiri's leadership represent, and and how long is it likely to last? Um, yeah, I mean, on on the location point, uh, I think it's perhaps self-evident to say that, uh, um, that you know, he's, uh, he's trying not to be located. Um, I think Al-Qaeda uh, have a, 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 an established interest uh, in having some fluidity in their locations, their ability to cross borders, um, being in border areas, being close to borders that can be crossed. Um, we, we, we placed, we, we, you know, we, that, uh, the, the, I have no reason to doubt uh, what the, 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 the location that you just quoted uh, possi- possibly uh, being in Afghanistan, but equally, uh, I have no uh, clear confirmation of that. And I, I, w- I would sort of say there's still fluidity. Uh, we know there's interaction between him. And if you d- if you did have confirmation of it, then he would probably be dead. So you know, because th- <laughs> you know, then the security services know where he is. Yeah, but you were saying there's some fluidity. There's some com- you have evidence of his communications with the outside world and other Al Qaeda groups and that sort of thing, which we've been tracking well, as well. So and com- yes, and communication, of course, with the Taliban and, and, yeah. and within the Taliban, particularly with the Haqqani. Uh, network. So, so there's there's so there's that you know, there's that sort of relationship, which obviously is something that is now threatened by the Afghan peace process. But up to now, we have no reason to think that that uh, relationship has uh, been severed or has been has significantly changed. So let's 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 place him within that sort of Taliban orbit. Um, on his health. Um, yeah, that was an interesting question with the pandemic. One of the first questions asked was, this man is elderly and he's in poor health. Um, and, uh, you know, what is, the, what is the possibility that he, for example, 
could be a casualty of COVID-19. No indication that that happened. Um, you know, maybe uh, maybe they've taken great precautions to protect him. That may well be the case. Nevertheless, um, he is elderly. He is uh, in poor health. There's been talk for some time about the fact that he's unlikely to um, be the man to, uh, to, to take Al-Qaeda very far into the new decade. Um, and so uh, I, th I think it's a, a very important question of what's this space. You know, would, would we see Al-Qaeda continue the broad direction which al-Zawahiri has set for it? Or could we see al-Qaeda somewhat uh, change course? You know, this gets to a, one of our obsessions here at Long War Journal. So we um, advocated for the release of the bin Laden files. These are the files that were recovered in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And the chief reason was that, and a lot of people to this day don't even realize this, but to, the chief reason was that prior to the Abbottabad raid, the prevailing assumption in the U.S. intelligence community was that bin Laden was out of the game. He was just basically a figurehead, and he was somebody who wasn't really involved in day-to-day -day operations, and he had passed control on to Zawahiri of day-to-day -day operations. Lo and behold, uh, the U.S. gets these files out of Abbottabad, and whoops, the situation is completely completely the reverse, completely the opposite. Uh, in fact, bin Laden is shown to be in day-to-day -day control, and some sources would even say he was micromanaging al-Qaeda. Uh, Al-Qaeda's global operations. We've documented in, you know, the last, we have a report coming on this in the last 18 months of his life, repeated communications and directions with Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Shabab, uh, you know, Iraq, the Islamic State of Iraq, uh, parties in Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, you know, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, basically, this is a guy who was very well connected to the outside world, even as he's one of the most hunted. And one of the things that stood out to us in the files too is that Zawahiri, in those files, you can see he's running a parallel operation. Uh, you know, Bin Laden is kicking things his way and saying, you know, hey, AQAM, when the head of AQAM sends him an update memo, make sure you CC Zawahiri, he's in charge of the mug rep, uh, and that sort of thing. And so it's very interesting to us because, you know, one of the nerdy things we focus on here is that the U.S. government hasn't produced sort of an assessment of what Al-Qaeda actually looks like internally in terms of here are its committees, here's what the Shura Council is comprised of, here's how this all works, and here's how this the relationship with the so-called affiliates, we call them regional branches of Al-Qaeda, here's how this all works. And I was just curious if, you know, we read through your the reporting you guys do, we see indications of that cohesion or, or network connectivity. Not saying that Zawahiri is in charge of every last detail. No, there is there is obviously a lot of decentralization in terms of day-to-day decision-making. He's not going to make a decision on every given raid in West Africa. This is not going to happen. But um, but there is more connectivity, I think, than people realize. At least there's evidence of more connectivity. And I was wondering if you had any insights on that at all in terms of what you guys are doing to sort of shore up the understanding of Al-Qaeda as we're now in 2020 moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you when you when you when you characterize Al Qaeda like that. I think I think that's exactly accurate. Um, I, I mean, Zawahiri is who he is, and and I think that's always been the case. And so, you know, when you had Zawahiri as number two to Bin Laden, you had a certain dynamic in play. When you have Zawahiri as number one, you have a different dynamic in play. He has strengths and weaknesses. Um, he's uh, he's he's a pretty good sort of um, philosophical. Communicator, you know, if you if you if you if you have the appetite for long screeds and you know <laughs> sort of uh, 
you know, he, he's he's he. You, you just hit on a central point about him. You know, so there's a lot of talk. You know, people say, "Well, Zawahiri's messages are boring." Listen, I'm I'm the guy who actually sits through all of them. Okay, and we translate them, and I, I listen to all of them in the original. So yes, they are absolutely boring. But you just hit on a key point. He he is having a philosophical or intellectual debate with people throughout the Islamic world. He knows that most, for example, most Muslim scholars do not agree with him. And he's trying to argue with them and trying to convince them that he's right. And that's not the hothead propaganda ISIS puts out. It's not that sort of thing that's going to catch the headlines. You know, some long hour and a half diatribe on the history of Egyptian politics isn't going to drive a lot of new recruits, right? Uh, but it is something that's interesting. So it's, it's, I'm interested that you come to the same conclusion, that that's basically what's driving him. He's got that sort of intellectual, almost wonky type of air about him. We, we kind of joke that he's the uh, Fidel Castro of the jihadist world. <laughs> loves to get up there and stand and just go on and, and on and on, you know, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, and I think, although, as you say, boring is a word that's often used about him and his speeches. Um, there is a certain strength in that. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, he's uh, he, he's he's engaging uh, in these discussions uh, with a lot of conviction um, and in a lot of detail. And he will see this as being slow burn, something that will pay dividends in the longer term. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he's right or not. You know, he may he may well be wrong. Um, but of course, yeah. you know, he, he is who he is. That's his approach. That's his style. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then you've got um, other people who have different sets of strengths. Now, one of Zawahiri's strengths is that he is a delegator, um, and I think he has quite a good uh, understanding of where he needs to put his foot down in order for Al-Qaeda to continue to be seen as one single entity, as one global movement, and where he doesn't need to put his foot down because it's perfectly okay for the regional affiliates to do things for themselves. And, and, and that, that, I would say, is a strength of Zawahiri's. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, uh, maybe, that's the, maybe that's the exact opposite of the, of the charismatic leader. You know, it's the, sort of, um, it's the, it's the kind of the, the manager, the, the guy who sort of rose, rose to the top from, uh, from through the management sort of thing. Um, and um, I think uh, when you look at the, the way that Al-Qaeda has outlasted ISIL in some ways, or at least kind of looks like it's, uh, looks like it's plotted a more stable and more durable course over the last few years than ISIL did, um, a, lot, a lot of that is to do with Zawahiri's style and the fact that people have been able to continue to identify with Al-Qaeda and uh, generate uh, a lot of uh, influence and power and in many cases revenue as well uh, in regional theaters uh, by embedding themselves as players in various regional conflicts. Um, and, 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 and Zawahiri has let that happen. He hasn't worried too much about it. He hasn't, he hasn't sort of fretted about whether something like Jainin in the Sahel is, you know, gosh, is that, that that's the coalition. They seem to have come up with some kind of deconfliction mechanism with with ISGS, you know, he didn't get threatened by that. He didn't sort of start sort of, you know, throwing tantrums and, and saying, you know, well, that's not the way it's supposed to work. You know, he, 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 has the, he, he has that long leash policy, which seems to be, uh, at least on that level, can be reasonably effective. But at the same time, he does occasionally put his foot down and he certainly put his foot down in Syria. And that was really interesting watching the dynamic play out in Syria, Northwestern Syria, particularly in, in, in the Idlib area. Uh, where you know there's sort of that, that 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 if you think about the progression of what happened uh, with ANF with HTS yeah. uh, with Haras um that was that was really interesting to watch and the fact that Zawahiri chose that arena in which to intervene really quite forcefully and in a way that actually has caused a you know 
at various points what has looked like increasingly like a schism uh, in, in, amongst the groups in northwestern Syria. Um, it's interesting to reflect on what you know. What is his intent there? What is what is his hope? If 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 Horas Adin is the sort of uh, is the sort of the the very loyal manifestation of Al Qaeda in Syria, um, what does he hope for them in the longer term? You know, do, how how does that consolidate into something that can be of long term strategic value to Al Qaeda? Interesting question. And there, I don't really know uh, Zawahiri's thinking. But there, but it, it is also interesting that there is this sort of. Um, Group leadership as well, um, uh, and and uh, I particularly want to mention Drukdel in this respect. You know, Drukdel, who was uh, the leader of Al Qaeda in uh, Islamic Maghreb or AQIM, mm -hmm. uh, and who of course was uh, was killed this summer. Um, that was that that you know that was that was a guy who was very much embedded uh, in the theatre of uh, you know the Maghreb. Uh, and indeed, uh, and indeed, of course, the Sahel, because he was he was effectively the uh, line manager, let's say, for uh, for for uh, for Jainim in the Sahel. Um, and yet he was, uh, you know, people people differ slightly on this in terms of the batting order in Al Qaeda. But but, you know, I've heard him described as one of the top five Al Qaeda leaders globally. Um, and, and that's interesting. You know, again, this sort of this collective leadership, uh, people who, you know, may find it very difficult to communicate with each other, but are no doubt happy to read Zawahiri's uh, writings and his and listen to his uh, listen to his uh, speeches and sort of say okay well you know I hear what the leader says and now this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, oh, go ahead, Tom. Go ahead. I was just going to say just quickly on that point. You know, one of the things we've heard, and I was wondering if you'd heard this in this sort of uh, you know question that has come up for us in a lot of conversations. We've heard that part of Al Qaeda's restructuring and reorganization in recent years. Has included the um, establishment of uh, something called like the Uma Shura or a cross regional Shura, which basically involves figures from all the regional branches of different theaters on a common sort of advisory council. Um, I was wondering if you'd heard anything about that. We're still working on trying to tease that out from sort of you know how this all works. But that's when we saw Drukdel was killed by the French with U.S. support in June. Some of what the French government was saying definitely tracked with what we our understanding of what Drukdel was doing, right? I mean, this idea that he is part of the line of succession potentially to Zawahiri is very interesting. Uh, and it means that Al-Qaeda has evolved. You know, we, we've sort of debunked time and time again this idea that there's a hard line between the so-called core and the affiliates. The situation's a lot murkier in a lot of cases, and you have clear examples where that isn't the case. Uh, and, you know, just curious if you have any sort of updates or insights into that sort of dynamic here in terms of how Al-Qaeda has evolved along those lines across regions. Yeah, not not in detail. I mean, we, we, we our thinking and some of what we're hearing is along the lines of what you just described. Uh, and if you talk about, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, some of the recently departed, uh, recently deceased people like Asim Omar or, or Waheshi uh, and others, um, you know, you can, you can, that, that sort of, that, that, that sort of sure that you describe, you can plot it and see where it is. And it's essentially, you know, people who've been particularly effective in particularly prominent regional affiliates who appear to have a global leadership role as well. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable proposition, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure of what it's, what it's physical or virtual shape is. 
Well, do me a favor. When you guys figure it out, you got to let us know because yes. we've been hunt- we've been hunting this. This is sort of our white whale is to figure out what the structure of Al Qaeda is in 2020. And we we ask everybody across the U.S. government and across everywhere else, you know, what's the current assessment of that? And they're, you know, the, the, every time we bring this up, they seem to have the same general inclination that you do that there's something to it, but we haven't gotten a definitive answer yet. So this is why we we think that the work you guys are doing and others are doing is so important is to tease these answers out and figure out exactly what we're looking at, you know, going forward here. Um, I guess maybe. Bill, you want to wrap up with a few questions on sort of the, you know, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. You know, one of the things that stood out to us is we've sort of, you know, one of the reasons Long War Journal exists is because we've documented the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda through the years, particularly through the Connies and others. You know, I, I often joke, you know, if you, you know, if you want to know why Long War Journal exists, it's basically to be an encyclopedia first and foremost for this relationship that so many people have tried to explain away. Um, and, you know, maybe, Billy, you have a few questions here we're going to ask Edmund on, on sort of what that looks like and sort of what their reporting is on that. Yeah, sure. And, and before I before I get to that, I mean, I just, you know, on Zawahiri's leadership, you know, I, I think on a, a couple of just a couple of quick points here. You know, he really does seem to trust his branch managers. He seems to give them the direction that they need and is willing to make let them make their local decisions just as long as things don't get too far out of field. Where um, in Syria in Syria they did get too far out of field. Right. That's, and that's that was the, the next that's point. A big where, mess, which to Edmund's point, that's a huge mess, right? Absolutely. And that was my next point is is you know, but the Iraq Syria situation always has been troublesome for Al Qaeda. Think about um, Zarqawi with, uh, you know, and the question is, is could bin Laden have handled this any, any, any differently? We'll never know the answer to that. As I always like to say, we can't build a time machine and figure that one out. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, those, those have been troublesome theaters, you know, for uh, Iraq, Syria, particularly. And I think a lot of this is um, Al Qaeda's own doing in trying to thread the, the needle too tightly with, working with local insurgent groups and, you know, the, or the free Syrian army and things of that nature. But, you know, on to, um, on to, uh, the, uh, Al Qaeda and, and the Taliban. So your monitoring team has reported on the ongoing relationship between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Have you seen any evidence that the relationship, uh, uh, continued past the February 29th deal that was signed between the U S and the Taliban in Doha? And, you know, of course the, your UN report noted that Al Qaeda and the Taliban were meeting to discuss, terms of the agreement and reassure each other, you know, how they would, would um, respond to this. Yeah. Um, so uh, that report that you refer to uh, was, uh, was written at the end of April. Uh, yeah. And so that's beyond the time of the, uh, of the Doha agreement. Um, mm-hmm. And that was current, you know, when we were writing it, it was not something that had stopped. It was something we understood was continuing. Oh, okay. um, gotcha. we, we also, we also have uh, written, uh, of course, we, we then did our next uh, 1267 report on, on ISIL and Al Qaeda uh, at the end of June, uh, and and in that we made some references also to mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And again, uh, we saw no evidence that uh, that that relationship uh, had significantly changed. Um, I mean, this is a this is a really interesting uh, question. Um, I think one thing we can be very clear on is that we cannot take the Taliban's good faith for granted uh, when they talk about their relationship with Al Qaeda. I mean, there is just a, a, a an endless uh, endless pool of evidence of bad faith there that they, you know, they have they they have they have uh, had that relationship. Uh, they have uh, treasured that relationship. Uh, that relationship has been uh, very clear, um, and yet they and yet they have made all sorts of denials about the presence of people on Afghan soil, uh, and those denials have no credibility whatsoever. Um, so, so we, you know, so we can't take the Tal- Taliban's word for it. But what I think perfectly reasonably people want to see 
who are supporting the Afghan peace process as we are, as the 1988 committee is. You know, this is this is you know important part of what we do is to support and facilitate uh, anything we can that helps uh, helps with the uh, Afghan peace process. And the question is, you know, the dynamic of a peace process, and I've seen this happen elsewhere, is that you know people have to make difficult compromises at some point. Sometimes they uh, are reluctant to make those compromises. Sometimes they start to make those compromises, but won't say that they're making them. Um, and then at some point, you know, the, the rubber hits the road and you actually get some, uh, you get you have to do some difficult things in order to enforce the direction that you're, you're going in. Now, now, what we hope is happening, of course, is that Taliban are preparing the ground, we hope, to suppress uh, any potential future threat from Al-Qaeda uh, as part of this agreement. Um, the Taliban already, of course, has got has, has played a role in, in suppressing the threat from, from ISIL-K uh, over the last couple of years. Um, so um, the question is, what does that look like? How would we, how would we see it uh, manifesting itself? It hasn't yet manifested itself in people leaving Afghanistan. I mean, those people are still there. So we're talking about very large numbers of uh, foreign extremists, uh, as well as, of course, you know, very significant numbers of uh, people who are sort of very much from the region, whether that's because they're Afghans or whether from, they're from the Afghan-Pakistani border uh, region from across the border or from Central Asia uh, or of Central Asian origin. Um, so uh, they're, they're still there. And at the moment, the Taliban is suppressing any projection of threat from Afghanistan outside Afghanistan. There's some evidence of them doing that. You know, that's, there is, it is not in the Taliban's interest for something like that to happen. So th therefore, they're trying to sort of manage something because the expectations on them will be bigger than that. The expectations will not be that Al-Qaeda can sort of live happily ever afterwards in Afghanistan just as long as they're careful. It has to be more than that. Uh, and the question is then, how unified is the Taliban on this point? We think that there are constituencies within the Taliban who have particularly strong links to Al-Qaeda. Those can sometimes be related to marriage, you know, sort of family and personal links. Uh, can just be, uh, you know, the sort of uh, historic comrades in arms type ties. Uh, can be, uh, can be um, ideological ties. Um, and we think, therefore, that the there are people in the Taliban movement who have had to be reassured that the Taliban will not break with Al-Qaeda. And, of course, the key proving point in this will be the point at which there isn't any scope for maintaining that ambiguity and the question of whether at some point the Taliban does actually clamp down on Al-Qaeda. Edmund, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but do you, can, are you able to name any of those uh, Taliban elements with the historical ties that would be unhappy with breaking ties I, I won't go into names but it's okay. more to do it's more to do with the fact that the Taliban itself is uh, a very geographically and to some degree thematically split movement they do have an impressive level of uh, ideological discipline and loyalty to uh, to the leadership um, nevertheless you know if you look at the difference between people who've made their expectations uh, in uh, in the Taliban office in Doha, those who have been uh, in uh, with the military side, those who have been with the political side, those who have remained inside Afghanistan in some form of 
combat or uh, shadow administration for, uh, capacity, and those who've been exiles, those who've been living the high life in the Gulf, uh, you know, uh, because uh, because they've been able to do that and have their kids at private schools or whatever it might be. Um, these people have almost inevitably grown somewhat apart. And the degree of corporate discipline within the Taliban has held up to now, but it will become more challenging. And um, have you seen any evidence that the Taliban's emir, uh, Habiatullah Akhundzada, um, has uh, renounced Ayman al-Zawahiri's uh, bayat or oath of allegiance? No. Yeah, neither have we. Uh, you know, another another case, that's one of the things that we we sort of put out the terms of what we think a break between the Taliban and al-Qaeda would look like because it's something that's always discussed and there's not any specifics given for what it actually would entail. And that's one of the one of the issues we look at. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that the Taliban has suppressed the ISIS-K threat. One of the things that Bill and I just commissioned was a translation of from Urdu, al-Qaeda's uh, summary of the fight in eastern Afghanistan, where al-Qaeda is quite clearly, according to its own account anyway, playing a heavy role in doing that for the Taliban, suppressing basically embedded within the Taliban and fighting in Nangarhar and Kunar and Nuristan against ISIS and taking credit for that in Urdu and explaining you know, how they provided that sort of logistical expertise to ISIS-K. This is one of the things that makes us skeptical that there will ever be a real true break, obviously, you know, with Al-Qaeda playing this sort of role deeply embedded within the Taliban. And of course, you know, there are there are cross-border attacks into Pakistan now, even with the Taliban. I agree the Taliban is a little wary about taking credit for anything too far afield from Afghanistan, but you do have sort of, you know, cross-border attacks in Pakistan pretty regularly, which is, you know, some already an indication that they're not totally reigning in it, you know, uh, you know, because you have the Pakistani Taliban and other groups there that are obviously have a regional focus and even international focus even that are actually operating across the border. So, you know, I, we're keeping an eye on it too. You know, we, we would we would love for everything that happens in Afghanistan to stay in Afghanistan, although that'd be horrific for the Afghan people in some ways. Uh, we're just skeptical that'd be the case. Bill, you got something else before we move on? Yeah, I, I would just add to that that I think it's also in Al-Qaeda's interest that it not conduct. I think that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are, are in agreement that Al-Qaeda – not conduct attacks, launch attacks. As long as the U.S. Well, is there, right? As long yeah. as the U.S. is there, because that'll allow the Taliban to get its victory, which benefits Al Qaeda in the long run. I mean, I'm with you, Tom. I don't believe that it's, uh, you know, that we can trust the the Taliban when it when it when people claim, you know, if, if the Taliban are saying, as you noted, Edmund, that Al Qaeda isn't even there, so how can they be an honest partner in um in dealing with Al Qaeda when they won't even publicly admit that Al Qaeda is on its soil? So. Yeah, uh, that's a big problem. I agree. Uh, I completely endorse what you say about the uh, Al Qaeda's embeddedness within Taliban operations. Uh, I think that's well established. Um, I, I think the the, the risk, uh, which I, I think you, you're you're hinting at very strongly, that elements within the Taliban want to sl slow roll things in such a way that they make progress in Afghanistan uh, and that the momentum. Uh, and the advantage shifts irrevocably in their favor without them having to make the kind of painful compromises that I referred to early, mm -hmm. earlier. That, that is a risk, and that's, that's where uh, mm -hmm. the intense monitoring from the international community is, is, is absolutely necessary. Bill, you want to move on and ask, uh, this is one of the, the questions we, we think is, 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 we're particularly interested in your answer and how you deal with this. You want to ask about the, the how the states involve Bill in Pakistan and Iran and that sort of thing? 
Yeah, yeah. So the how does how does the monitoring team assess the relationship between states such as Pakistan and Iran with the Taliban? And and look, it's it's well known that both nations have, have harbored the Taliban leadership and and networks that operate inside Afghanistan. That they provided weapons and financial support, training camps, safe havens. How you know this has to be an, a, a very difficult issue for the monitoring team to deal with. Uh, you know how, how do you how do you square that circle? Well, I mean, we so we talk about these issues to all member states. You know, there's no inhibition on this. Um, you know, I have had conversations with uh, states who have very different perspectives on Afghanistan mm-hmm. about our mandate. Uh, so, you know, our mandate, you know, the 1988 mandate is in the end primarily targeted against uh, the Taliban or at least targeted to uh to, to, to prevent the Taliban from posing a threat to peace and, and, and security in Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, we don't only go and talk to one set of interlocutors. We don't sort of take all our information from the Afghan authorities or take all our information from the U.S. authorities or anything like that. We are talking to uh, all parties. It pulls us to get a sort of a, a fairly accurate triangulation of the Taliban, who they are, where they are, what their strength is. Um, when you talk about state relations with the Taliban, I think we we do seek to be careful on this point because in the end, state relations with the Taliban are not a bad thing per se. Uh, in the end, the international community has a very strong interest in seeing the Taliban engage in the peace process. So shutting them out doesn't particularly help. And you know we've seen many international partners uh, over the last couple of years, uh, engaging with the Taliban and in some cases increasing their engagement with the Taliban. Uh, you know, look at look at Qatar for, as an example of a, a country which agreed to have a Taliban office in Qatar purely for the purpose of supporting the negotiations. So we are very keen not to try to embarrass over the way that they manage their relationship with the Afghan parties that wouldn't be helpful to the peace process. But we are happy to talk very accurately about any uh, pernicious activity that the Taliban itself gets up to. You know, on the, on the issue of states, it's one of the interesting things that popped out to us too in your recent reports is that like the State Department, uh, your monitoring team had noted the two senior Al-Qaeda leaders, Saif al and Abu Muhammad al-Mazri were inside Iran and helping Zawahiri sort of manage Al-Qaeda's global operations. You know, anytime we bring up Iran, you know, obviously in the U.S., this is part of a very, uh, you know, uh, uh, raucous debate over Iran policy. We, we try and avoid that as much as possible when it comes to getting the details of the facts right. But it's interesting, is that still sort of the monitoring team's assessment that these guys, Saif al and Abu Muhammad al-Mazdi were long-standing al-Qaeda veterans. Um, you know, they were detained in Iran for a time, of course, and there's a whole complex history of the Iranian relationship with al-Qaeda, which we're not going to sum up here. But is it your sort of understanding that those two guys are still in Iran today um, and 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 playing a management role for al-Qaeda? Well, as you say, there's a fairly well-known sort of background to that. And yeah. I, won't, I won't sort of go over that because you know better than I do, I think. Um, the... When we mentioned that, it was in a very brief paragraph in our report uh, in, uh, I think it was, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, I think it was the summer of 2018. I think it was the... Um, yeah, I think you're right. Would have been the 22nd report. 
had to do with Syria and basically the the, the problems in Syria that Al Qaeda was encountering and them weighing in. Yeah. Yeah, and we we as as always we 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 reported what we were confident was the truth mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Um, subsequently, uh, you know, because we we talked to all member states. Uh, and we talked to uh, the Iranians, and the Iranians told us that it was not true. Um, of course. I have, I have no subsequent information, mm-hmm. and I have no information about any other place where they might be. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, Bill, let's, let's skip ahead to uh, the last two questions, what do you think, for yeah, ab- absolutely. We'll let him wrap up here and get yeah. out of here. So that he's been very gracious with his time. Um, so one of the more um, interesting things you guys have reported on too um, is this idea that um, the Haqqanis within the Taliban, of course, the Haqqanis are a big part of the Taliban coalition, have actually been facilitating some ISIS operations or playing a role in that behind the scenes. Um, you know, we were reading through your reporting. We saw there was a footnote where you guys had looked at intercepts that basically indicated some sort of foreknowledge or or knowledge by the Haqqanis of what these ISIS-claimed attacks were going to be. That's a very interesting point because, you know, the Haqqanis and the Taliban, obviously, as you as you noted, were, have been fought ISIS and have tried to suppress the ISIS-K uh, sort of threat. But by the same token, you know, you, you sort of see these indications that they are playing this, this sort of duplicitous game and sort of using them to – uh, conduct attacks on civilians. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because that was very interesting to see that you guys were reporting on that. Yeah, I, I think it's a really important point. And uh, I mean, I think, you know, the point here is, I mean, if you think about it, um, it's not particularly surprising because uh, when you have a multi-sided conflict of the kind that exists in Afghanistan, uh, you know, you're going to have complexities in the way that the various protagonists are interacting with one another. Um, so uh, what does ISIL Khorasan represent from the Taliban's point of view? It represents both a threat and an opportunity. It represents a threat because it is encroaching on the Taliban's territory, it's encroaching on its operations, it's encroaching on its revenue streams, uh, it's uh, it's an ideological enemy. Um, and, uh, and so there's a very strong Taliban uh, you know, inclination to push back against that. And the Taliban has also fully understood that there is an enormous public relations uh, advantage in pushing back on that. You know, if you, can, if you can claim that the reason that ISIL was more or less eradicated from Jiaozhan province in 2018 uh, because of your military activity, um, that's great PR. It's, it, it, it's a great way of also glossing over the fact that that uh, presence in Jiaozhan was a renegade Taliban faction, yeah. which, had, which yeah. had declared for ISIL and was therefore actually, in a way, was something which the Taliban had a very strong vested interest in suppressing because they were looking to say, you don't get to do that. You don't get to leave the Taliban. You don't get to hoist the ISIL flag and do your own thing. Uh, but of course, yeah, the Taliban are pretty shrewd with their public relations and they, and they played that for all it was worth and they understood but they got a lot of uh, benefit from that. And I think you can see that carrying over into the way that they get from the, uh, you know, their involvement in other anti-ISIL operations uh, more recently, and particularly in the, uh, uh, in the Eastern, you know, in sort of Nangahar and Kunar. Um, so that's one part of the dynamic, but then the opportunity point, it's inescapable that the less capable the Afghan government is of providing uh, security and stability to its citizens, the weaker it looks, the more distracted it is, the more stretched its counterterrorism capabilities are, 
the more of an advantage the Taliban can derive from that for its own operations. And so I think what that gives you then is two objectives, which are on the face of them contradictory, but which are very nicely catered for if you have the structure that Taliban has, where you have the Taliban as a whole, and then you have uh, the Haqqani network, which is part of the Taliban, which is pursuing the same goals as the Taliban, but which has a latitude uh, to, for opportunism, uh, which would not be granted out you know, to, to other parts of the Taliban. So yeah, that if the Haqqani network can deniably do things which, uh, which help the Taliban in terms of that opportunity, then of course they do it. So you know, I, I, think it, I think it makes perfect sense. Do the Taliban deny it? Yes, of course they do. Yeah, yeah, it's that plausible deniability. I, I definitely feel that that is a key element to, to what's happening here. It helps to weaken the Afghan government. It shows that the Taliban, look, the Taliban can say, look, we've defeated the Islamic State on other instances, in other instances, and, you know, rely on us and we'll do it again. And yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I the, you know, when I first heard the theory, I, I was skeptical. And then as I thought about it more and more and I saw and you start seeing all these unclaimed attacks, because let's face it, as Tom and I joke, the Islamic State would claim an attack on a porta potty and, you know, in in remote Badakhshan uh, province, if, if it could. And the fact that all these unclaimed attacks go on are, are occurring, you know, it really makes you wonder what's happening in the background here. And uh, so I, I promise uh, this will be the last question here. Uh, well, Bill, sorry, before you do, yeah, sorry, sure. that just, I just wanted to thank you for making that point because I missed that point. Uh, and that is that uh, that is the basis for claiming an attack. And, and this is, of course, whether an attack is credibly against a, what could be termed a military target or whether it is simply carnage against civilians. Yeah, right. and, and this is the point that the that ISIL Khorasan are very happy to claim attacks no right. matter how barbaric they are. Yes. And there are there are attacks which the Haqqani network has contributed to, but where it would obviously not suit the Taliban to be associated with them. Absolutely. No, I actually I gathered that from what you had said. So uh, I just was sort of reinforcing it. And I also wanted to make the porta potty joke. I'll be honest with you. Um, uh, so uh, last question. And thank you again. You know, this has been a real pleasure. Tom and I have been wanting to have you on this podcast for forever now. And we are just so happy to have you. This was so informative. And uh, I just again, your presence is it's an honor to have you. Um, so as, as part of the U.S. Taliban deal, um, the U.S. agreed to revisit sanctions against uh, that were levied against Taliban officials. Uh, do you know if the uh, U.S. has opened up the books uh, in this regard? Are there any plans which you are aware of to delist the Taliban or Haqqani network officials? And what would the impact uh, be of removing um, these uh, Taliban Haqqani leaders from the sanctions list? Well, I'm, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a sort of a a careful answer to this because there is, you know, that we, I understand. we're bound by committee confidentiality. So, mm -hmm. so I, I would never talk about the, um, the confidential deliberations of the committee. Um, obviously, as you know, part of the Doha agreement did talk about lifting uh, UN sanctions. So, you know, it, it, it's out there. It's been, it's been discussed. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been, it's been mooted. Um, but uh, in, in terms of uh, in terms of where we stand, well, the uh, the sanctions regime was uh, was uh, renewed um, at the beginning of this year uh, for another year. Um, there is a question of what happens uh, within that year, uh, what happens in terms of the extension of the sanctions regime, um, and uh, these are all tasks that are before the international community as we speak. Um, 
there is I have no insight into where that's going to go. Um, you know whether 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 there'll be uh, some kind of look at wholesale delisting, whether there'll be some kind of look at partial delisting. Uh, these are all uh, matters for member states and matters for the committee. Uh, and and as I said, uh, you know uh, our role when it comes to uh, supporting the sanctions uh, uh, committees is technical and advisory. So we'll provide whatever help is we're asked for uh, in terms of whatever direction the international community wants to go. Um, I, I, I lied. One one follow up question there: Hasn't these uh, haven't members of the Taliban and Haqqani network have been tra- that have listed been traveling to Doha? So in effect, aren't they violating the sanctions committee, or is that just look the other way because of the the talks? Well, so 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 actually, uh, I'm glad again. I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, and again, this is perfectly in the public domain, but really important to stress that actually the peace process has been really helpful to the uh, sanctions compliance because uh, one of the things that it's done is it's made people much more serious about looking at uh, Taliban travel and whether Taliban travel is for the purposes of pursuing a peace process or whether it's for other purposes. And in fact, the 1988. Uh, the 1988 uh, committee has has granted uh, travel ban exemptions okay. uh, to a whole list of Taliban negotiators. Uh, so, so, so actually, uh, actually, this is rather good. It's a it's it's, a, it's, it's an example of what I was saying earlier about the 1988 sanctions regime in the end existing to support peace and stability, uh, peace and security in Afghanistan, and 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 very much to support the peace process. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the answer. That's great. Well, thank you again for joining us, uh, Edmund Fitton Brown, former amb- Her Majesty's former ambassador to Yemen, uh, currently is the coordinator of the UN Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team for ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and the Taliban, and associated groups and individuals. We really appreciate you coming on the show this week and talking about all this. It's really been our pleasure, and uh, you can come back anytime you want to talk about anything. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Bill. It's been a huge pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. The pleasure is ours. And thank you to our audience again for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we will see you again next week.